And that is the single most important thing that's ever happened in history. Nothing comes close to it. And it began as a rumor that morning that the women had gone to the tomb to bring spices and to prepare the body. And then they got there, they found the stone had been rolled away. The tomb was empty. And as they went out in the garden, they were trying to process exactly what had happened. There they said that Jesus came and appeared to them. The Lord appeared to them. They rushed back and told the, the male disciples of what had happened. And they sprinted, a full-out sprint to the grave. There found that the stone was in fact rolled away. The tomb was empty. And there what they noted was that the grave claws were set aside in a way that showed that it was not done in haste. There was some intentionality here about this. And they found that over the next 40 days, Jesus repeatedly appeared to them, instructing them about the kingdom of God. He'd come walking through doors that were locked. He had meals with them, and he appeared not only to the disciples and those who had believed, he'd appeared to about 100 of the people at that time, including his half-brother James, who had been skeptical and not had believed it up until this point. But after seeing the risen Christ, he said, I get it, I see it, I've seen it with my own eyes. And he became one of the leaders of the early church, despite having been a cynic all the way up until this point. And as a result of this, the central message of the Christian church for 2,000 years has been, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Say it with me one more time, Christ is risen. risen And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But rather than recount the story, which I've just summarized for us, I want to talk this morning, as churches are going to talk all around the world, as and every continent and nearly every nation around the world, Christians will gather together today to talk about the resurrection of Christ. Rather than talk about the events of that first Sunday morning, I want to talk about what it means for us. And to look at a story that Jesus told before his death and resurrection that he used as a way of preparing his disciples and followers for what his resurrection would mean. And we're going to look at this in Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. And this is one of the parables of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to say my name is Steve. I love Jesus. I love my family. And I love Victory Highway Wesleyan Church. So glad to be here with you. So glad you chose to be with us on this Easter morning. We are one church that exists in multiple locations here at Painted Post in Elmira. I was over there in Elmira yesterday praying for you folks over there in Elmira. And uh, wherever you are, and I hear every week from people who are joining us all over the world and across the region, and if wherever you are on this, mor- this morning, I'm glad you're joining us this morning online, and so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. Let's pray together as we open up God's word together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we open it, we pray that we would hear your voice, and that you would fill us with resurrection, awe, and wonder. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. Again, a parable that Jesus used to explain his resurrection. He said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now remember, this is, again, a parable that Jesus is using to tell and prepare his disciples for what his resurrection will mean. And there's three characters that Jesus includes in this story. The first one is the rich man. And the rich man represents a life of luxury, somebody who's had everything go right for him. He's dressed well. He's got more than enough food. He's very comfortable. He lives in a gated community. And he lives this pristine, untouched life, so much so that he seems to be indifferent or unaware of the fact that there is a beggar right outside his door. And that's the second person in this this parable. The, the, The only person Jesus names in one of his parables, Lazarus, a beggar. 
And Lazarus is this man who suffered greatly. We don't know exactly how he came down on his luck, but he's there dropped off at the rich man's gate, and he's, he's just hoping that some crumbs fall from the rich man's table. And it says that he's covered in sores and that dogs are coming and licking his wounds. Now, we're, we're a dog-loving culture. I'm a dog-loving person, but this is not a good thing in the first century. This is not like, oh, look at the dog's game, the puppy's game, and they're, they're hanging out with the poor guy. No, this is, this is a very different connotation in the first century. Think more like cats, if cats were surrounding him in this moment. That's, that's, you know, the poor guy, can't even just suffer in peace. Even cats are harassing him. That's kind of what the connotation is here. So you got the rich man, you've got the poor man. They're on opposite sides of this gate. The rich man is, is living a life of ease. The, the poor man is living a life of suffering. And then the time comes when they both die. And in death, that introduces the third character in this parable, which is Father Abraham. Abraham was one of the patriarchs. He appears in the book of Genesis. He's the father of uh, Isaac and the grandfather of Jacob. They're the patriarchs. So this is a, an actual historical person who lived, and we see him in scriptures. But this is not sharing biographical information about Abraham. This is using him more of a symbol of the afterlife. And in Jewish minds, sometimes they talk about Abraham's bosom or, or being at Abraham's side as a way of, the way that we might refer to St. Peter at the pearly gates. You know, we talk about St. Peter at the pearly gates as, as kind of a symbol of entering into heaven. That's the same kind of connotation with Father Abraham. For instance, there was a woman who died, and she, she made her way up to heaven. She sees Peter at the pearly gates, and she said, I made it to heaven, huh? And he said, yep, you're welcome to heaven. And she said, do I just go in through the gates? And she, he said, no, actually, there's a test before you can enter, into the, enter through the pearly gates. And she said, really? He said, it's a spelling test. She said, there's a spelling test to get into heaven? He said, yep. He said, you have to spell a word before you can come in. And she said, well, what word do I have to spell? He said, that's the good part. You get to spell whatever word you want to spell. And she said, really? So she said, I think I'll spell love, L-O-V-E. Peter said, great, good job. You can now come into heaven. And she said, boy, that was pretty easy. And she begins to make her way in. And Peter says, actually, would you mind watching the gate for a minute? I haven't had a bathroom break in a couple centuries. If you could just cover the gate for a minute so I could just run to the bathroom. I promise I won't be long. And she said, what if anybody comes? And he said, well, just... Have them wait a minute. I promise I won't be long. I'll be right back. And so St. Peter goes off to the, the bathroom, and she's hanging out at the pearly gates just looking around and hoping that nobody shows up. Well, lo and behold, of course, some man comes walking up. And as he gets closer, she says, are you kidding me? And it's her ex-husband. <laughs> and he walks up to the gate, and he says, are you kidding me? Of all people, i got to run into here. And they start bickering and kind of quarreling as they did for many years and finally, he says, listen, can, we, can I just get in there, please? What do I got to do to walk through the gate? She says, well, actually, there's a test. We have tests around here, you know. You can't just come walking through the pearly gates. He said, what's the test? She said, it's a spelling test. You have to spell a word before you can enter in. He said, what word? She said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> That's kind of the picture here. Father Abraham, we're not describing a, a biographical thing. By the way, there's not a spelling test to get into heaven. There's, but... But this is the kind of image here of, of Father Abraham representing the afterlife and peace for the afterlife for the poor man, not for the rich man. And not only are the three characters, the rich man, the poor man, and Father Abraham, there's three places that this takes place. There's the rich man's gate, where the, the rich man is on one side and the comfortable side, the poor man is on, the, on the, the not good side. And then there's Hades, where the rich man finds himself in the afterlife, which technically just means the afterlife, the place where, where spirits go when they die, but in this parable is used to describe a place of torment, hell, if you will. And, and then the, the, the poor man ends up at Abraham's side, a place of comfort. 
And now they're, they're separated by this chasm once again. And it says, again, Jesus is describing his resurrection, what his resurrection is going to mean for us. And it says in verse 24, So he, the rich man, called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm. A great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So you kind of picture the scene here. Now, again, this is a parable. And so when it comes to parables, we take the meaning seriously. We don't take the details seriously. You don't actually sit, you know, we don't cuddle up with Father Abraham when we die. We don't actually pass through the pearly gates. The, the parable, we're looking at the meaning, not the specific details. And so I, he's, Jesus is not saying that people in hell can see people in heaven and people in heaven can hear people who are in hell. That's not what the point is here. But for the, for the context of this parable, He's saying that the rich man can look up and he sees that Lazarus, the beggar, is comfortable and at ease and he's so desperate. He's in so much agony. He's so thirsty. He's reached this point of desperation that he cries out to Father Abraham, can you just ask the beggar to dip his finger in water and come down here, just let me get a drop of water from the the poor man's fingertip because that would just provide, I'm, I'm, I'm in such agony, I'm in such... Uh, need of relief that just a drop of water from his finger would be a source of comfort to me. And Abraham says, no, can't do it. Even if we wanted to, there's a chasm between us that no one can cross between here and there. And it's interesting that in their lives, in their mortal lives, they were separated by a great chasm as there was this, this gate that separated the rich man from the poor man. And now in the afterlife, there's a great chasm that separates the, the rich man in Hades and the poor man at Abraham's side. And there's this great chasm. And the meaning of this parable seems to be, what seems to be is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Generally, this, this parable has been used to, and taken to mean that there will be a great reversal and there will be many surprises. That many people who seem to be blessed will turn out to be not so. And those who seem to be cursed will turn out to be blessed. And there will be a great reversal and though... In, in this life, it looked like the rich man had it good, that God was in his corner and blessing him. It turns out, nope, he's in for a great surprise. And the, the poor man, who looked like he was cursed, there's a great surprise for him as well. And so this is often taken to mean that there's going to be a great reversal. However, this is the fun part. Jesus didn't write this parable. This is the only parable that Jesus tells that wasn't original to him. And it's, it's kind of surprising when you realize that, that up until this point, the part that we've shared up until this point is an existing parable that actually go, has its origins back in Egypt. And it was shared for a long time before Jesus came along. And it appears in many of the rabbinical writings of Jesus' time that this has been a very well-known parable at Jesus' time and, and during his ministry. So that when he's sharing this, most likely his listeners were saying, we know this, we've heard this one before. This isn't like you, Jesus. When he shares the parable of the prodigal son or of the good Samaritan, those are original stories to Jesus. But this one, we've heard this one. It'd be like me singing Mary Had a Little Lamb or Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. You know those songs, they're original. But if I twisted the ending, if I changed the ending of it, that's where you would know that I'm trying to drive a, a point home. Like if I said, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men came back in the morning for scrambled eggs. So I get a little chuckle there. 
not a great chuckle. I think you like Czechoslovakia better, but I got a little chuckle for, for Humpty Dumpty because if I just said Humpty Dumpty, there's no laugh, there's no reaction at all because you know how it ends. But when I change the ending, there's a little bit of surprise there. And that's what Jesus is doing here with this parable. He's taking a story that they all know. They know where this is headed. They know what it means. And he's adding his own ending to it. And that's where we've, we should lean in as disciples of Jesus and say, where's he going with this? What's, what's the point he's trying to drive home with the ending that he, that he adds on to the back of this? And this is what he adds, verse 27. He, the rich man, answered, Okay, then if he can't come to me, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn, warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, No, Father Abraham, watch this. But if someone from the dead goes back to them, then they will repent. And up until this point, we think it's a story about a rich man and a poor man and, and this reversal that's going to happen. We think it's about the surprise that we'll all encounter someday when we face the judgment and that many people encounter of not realizing that what they thought was a blessed life was not and, and experiencing what their eternal destiny will be. But it turns out it's not a story about two dead men. It's a story about us. We're the five brothers. We're the five brothers. And this, this twist that Jesus adds to the end is what will it take to convince people who are on this side of eternity to live in light of eternity? And this is the question Jesus is asking. What would it take to convince you to live in light of eternity? And in the case of the, the rich man, he says, no, if, if Lazarus can't come here and just give me a little drop of water, at least send him back to warn my brothers. And if somebody comes back from the dead, surely my brothers would believe then because I just want my brothers to avoid what I'm experiencing right now. And Abraham says they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them believe that. And we've got to think about what it, what it would take for us, those of us who are on this side of eternity, those of us who are yet still living, to have our perspective changed. And what would it take for you to live your life in light of eternity? came across this illustration a few years ago, and if Jesus can use a parable that somebody else wrote, I can use an illustration somebody else came up with, and it involves using a rope. And and this rope represents your life, the timeline of your life and all the significant things that have happened in your life and graduating from school and getting potty trained and learning to ride on two wheels and, and all the significant things that happened in your life. And you think about all the details of your life and the, the big milestones and the big moments of your life and how all of these things shake out and, and you think about the plans that you have for your life, only this part is not your mortal life, this is your mortal life. And... This is when you, you're born, and this is when you die, and then you enter into your eternal life. And when you're, you know, when you're potty training toddlers, it feels like it's just going to go on forever and ever and ever. Are they ever going to get it? Are they ever going to sleep through the night? But even that's just this little part of the, your life, just a little sliver. And there are people who live, work like dogs during the week, just living for the weekends, and you realize in light of this, Living for the weekends, that's such a short little slice of your life. Or there are people who, who work like a dog for, for years and years, saving up all that they can, all that they can so that they can retire comfortably. And you realize, like, there's just this little part of your life, what, 10, 20, 30, if you're lucky, 40 years? And most of the people I know who are retired say, I wish I had spent some of that money back here when I had healthy knees and healthy hips and I wasn't spending all day long at doctor's appointments because you just don't have time to do anything else in this gap of life. But... 
then we realize that you got all this, we spend all this time planning for just this little slice of, the, of our timeline, and it goes on and on. What does it take to live our lives in light of eternity and what's to come? And there are people who spend all of their time and all of their energy only thinking about this little part of your life, this little part of your life with never giving a thought to the life that's to come. And at the same time, I know a lot of people who are laying up treasures in heaven, giving sacrificially and living sacrificially. You've got people who've gone off from this church to be missionaries around the world, sacrificing a bit of this part of the timeline because they know that so much of this goes on. We've got one of those who's home this weekend, and one of my heroes to think about the sacrifices that are being made here in light of the eternal life that goes on. What's it going to take for you to live this part of your life in light of this? And this is the the twist that Jesus adds onto this parable. Reminds me of a story of Albert Einstein. He was on a train one day, and uh, the conductor was coming through and checking tickets, and he came to Albert Einstein asking for his ticket, and he said, oh, yeah, I've got it right here. And he checked over here, and I can think, is it in this pocket? Nope, over here. And he's checking all of his pockets, and suddenly he's looking in his bag, and he's looking in his belongings. He's getting up and looking under his bench, and he's asking the person next to him if he can get up and move to take a look there. And finally the conductor says, listen, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. It's, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm sure you bought a ticket. I know who you are. Don't worry about it. So he goes on the way, and he's checking other people's tickets, and then he comes back through the train, and he sees that Einstein still is checking his pockets and looking everywhere and looking under his seat and asking people to move so he can look under the bench, and he's getting down on the floor looking down to see if it fell in there. And so the conductor comes up to, to Albert Einstein and says, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. Don't worry about it. And Einstein said, I know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. You know who you are, but where are you going? Where is this going for you? How, how are you investing this part of your life in light of what eternity is going to bring? As Jim Elliott said in 1949, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. No matter what you do, this is going to come to an end someday. No matter all our best efforts, all the best medical technology, all the best financial advisors, all of this is going to come to an end. But you are not going to come to an end. And your life will go on. And what will it take to live your life in light of eternity? And Jesus adds this punchline at the end of the story. Verse 31, he said that, that Father Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And here, this is the single most important thing that ever happened. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event that happened in all of human history. And Jesus said, even if I rise from the dead, it's still not going to be enough to convince some people. But what about you? I want to invite you to consider a couple responses to this. And the first is that next week we're beginning a new series called Afterlife. And we're going to be exploring these topics we've been talking about this morning. Spoiler alert, there is no spelling test to get into heaven, uh, in case you're wondering about that. And I don't know if St. Peter's hanging out at the pearly gates or if you get to cuddle with Father Abraham in the afterlife, but uh, I'm pretty sure there are dogs in heaven. And uh, I I think the cats go to that other place. But but we're going to be looking at, I just got a boo, that's okay. We love you anyway. Uh, 
there's, we're going to talk about heaven and hell, and we're going to spend a week talking about grief, and what, what happens on the other side of eternity, what the scriptures say about heaven and the afterlife and hell and grief, and what that means for the life we live right now, the, the, the ramifications of that for right now. And so I hope you'll be a part of that, looking forward to that series, been looking forward to this one for quite a while. And so again, that series, Afterlife, starts next week. But the second thing is to think about your rope and that part of your rope that, that you're investing in the most. Are you making investments in, in the life that is to come? Are you making deposits in the life that is to come? Or are you spending all of your time and energy, spending all of your emotional energy and stressing out about this little part of your life that is going to end no matter what you do about it? Ultimately, if Jesus is not the center of your life, it doesn't matter what you do with this side of eternity. Ultimately, if Jesus is not at the center of it, it doesn't matter what else you do, however good or however bad it might be. If Jesus is not the center of it, the rest of it is all for naught. And so this morning, I want to invite you to consider what it would look like for you to give Jesus all the rest of your days. In the same way that Jesus took this parable that was so well known to all of his listeners and hearers, and, and he added his own ending onto it that was a surprise and an unexpected twist to his listeners, Whatever you think your life might be going, wherever you think it might be going from here, wherever it's been before this point, Jesus can add his own beautiful twist to the ending of your story that is sweeter and better and richer and purer than you could ever possibly dream or imagine. But you've got to hand it to him. He won't do it without your permission. So it's giving Jesus your life and saying, I've made a mess of it. It's not going well, or it's going well, and I've found that it's as dissatisfying as anything could possibly be. All the success that I thought would make me happy has just made me more miserable. Or all of my own efforts have resulted in failure. Or I recognize now that my life is going to go on forever, and I'm not prepared for that, so Jesus, take my life. We sang this line earlier in the first song, and I want to close with this. Come and see that the night is coming to an end. Today is the day that we'll see resurrection. Let's pray together. This morning, if you are feeling or hearing the, the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart, you can hear the voice of God calling you Don't resist it. Don't resist him. Don't run. Just pray with me. Jesus, take my life. I hand it over to you. My successes, my failures, my sins, my good deeds, it's all rubbish. I want you to have it. Make a beautiful ending out of my story. Make a surprise ending to the life that I have left, however long or short it may be. Prepare my life, prepare my heart for eternity, and I, I cast myself at you. I know that only in you is there hope. Only in you is there forgiveness. So Jesus, I've made a mess of things, and I ask you to forgive me. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve your forgiveness. 
So I throw myself at your mercy. I know that your word says that you are faithful and just and will purify me of all of my sinfulness. Lord, I will need to be purified and washed clean. Make me new. Prepare my heart for eternity that I can be with you and know that I have peace with my Heavenly Father and can live on this side of eternity with purpose and peace because Christ is risen. And I pray it all in your name. Amen.